Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Samuel Moyne, Professor of Law and History at Harvard University. His book, Christian Human Rights, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is a topic Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Samuel Moyne, Professor of Law and History at Harvard University. His book, Christian Human Rights, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. Moyne provides a historical intervention in our understanding of how the idea of human rights came to be. He argues that contrary to current thought that sees it as part of the long legacy of Christianity, or the triumph of liberal democracy, it has a more complicated history. The notion of human rights that dominated the mid-20th century was inspired by a defense of the dignity of the human person. It first arose just prior to World War II as part of the reformulation of the liberal idea of human rights, deemed morally bankrupt, taken up by conservative religious thinkers. Moyne argues that the long-held Christian concept of moral equality of human beings did not translate into political rights. Rather, the reformulation of human rights in the 1940s was a Catholic communitarian defense against totalitarianism, capitalism, and political secularism. The language of rights was extricated from the legacy of the French Revolution, rights of man, to become a religious value checking the political power of the state, with religious freedom as a key concept. The philosophy of personalism, articulated by Jacques Mariotton, recast democracy and human rights in a Catholic vein, becoming enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the ascendancy of Christian democratic parties at mid-century. Secularized after the 1960s, human rights became an increasingly uninspiring concept unable to do the work it promised. Moyne suggests transcending this mid-20th century Christian legacy and notes the need to find a new, effective, transformative creed. Here is my conversation with Samuel Moyne. Let me introduce you to the author, Samuel Moyne. Sam, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Thank you for having me. The history of human rights is a fascinating one, and in this book, You have engaged in an intervention, I would call it, in our assumptions about its origins. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Christian Human Rights. Uh, I'm uh, I'm an American. I am a historian by training. I've I've also just started teaching law recently. Um, And I I taught at Columbia for more than a decade, and and now I teach at Harvard University. I'm in both the law school and the history department. Actually, I wrote this book uh, because when I first started thinking about human rights, I focused on a particular thinker named Jacques Maritain, uh, who I quickly identified as the most important um, promoter intellectually of human rights in the 1940s. Uh, and I, I, I decided later that, you know, I, I wouldn't write much about intellectuals because I didn't think they were the main story in the history of human rights. But when I was asked to give some lectures last year uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, I came back to Maritain and just how Christian a moment um, in human rights history the 1940s were. And this book is basically the published version of those lectures. I see. Okay. What is your main argument? It's, your book is really an argument against, uh, I think, some other things that are happening with scholars who are looking at human rights and writing about human right. rights. And right. what is your intervention in this conversation? So so uh, I've made a few interventions, but this one is, is sort of specific. Um, it focuses on the 1930s and 40s, uh, so just a a few decades in the last century. Um, And I'm really opposing two other views. One is a more common secular view that human rights are an important body of secular principle. Maybe they have older roots, but they really took off in the French Revolution or the American and French Revolution. And 
um, at some later point, there emerged human rights activism for suffering people far away. Um, and then there's another view, which is a, is a Christian view of their origins, um, but it attributes human rights to kind of very old Christian tradition, maybe as far back as Jesus. Um, instead, I want to argue um, against the, the, the first group that we need to take seriously how Christian human rights were at least at a certain point and that Christian contributions to the very possibility of the human rights regimes and movements and ideals we have today is very real. But in response to the Christians, I want to move the clock way forward to World War II. And I try to show that um, most European Christians, at least, were tempted by far right-wing politics in the 30s. And human rights were one way they recovered their bearings um, in the 1940s, um, but mainly for conservative purposes. So um, what I try to show is at least for some body of people, um, human rights were a Christian political project about reformulating conservatism after a, a, some bad mistakes in the 30s. So when you're when you're doing this, you, you go back in your first chapter. You talk. Your first chapter is entitled "The Secret History of Human Dignity," because human dignity has been the argument done by uh, by Christian thinkers as the foundation for human rights, which they claim is a you know a Christian foundation. And you talk about that and how that translates into the idea of the human person, and then. What, how that's different from a liberal notion of human rights. Right, right. So actually today everyone's for dignity uh, and human dignity, and that's in part because the 40s left us with a legacy of saying that human rights come from our human dignity. Um, and now everyone believes it, and everyone is, says it, in fact, in in the recent U.S. Supreme Court case of Obergefell v. Hodges, which provided gay marriage rights, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy talks a lot about human dignity and, and the right to marry. Um, so again, in my, in my attempt to think about where, where human dignity came from, I'm opposing a few different groups. Um, so the Christian thesis has been that it comes from Genesis one twenty six, which says people are made in the image and likeness of God, or it comes from Jesus or the Middle Ages. Um, uh, but that doesn't seem right. Um, it may be right at a very abstract level or in a few philosophy books, but when we look at how human dignity entered law, it wasn't after World War II, but before and it was in Ireland in the course of um, an, a, a successful attempt to get rid of an old liberal constitution and create a Christian constitution. And so what I try to suggest is that dignity was about rights, but about also constraining rights. Um, it was about saying rights are something that limit the state for the sake of a Christian moral community. And, it, dignity was introduced as part of the attempt to create w what what I call an, um, Christian democracy. And so what I find is when we look ahead after World War II, we should really be attentive to how human dignity and rights are linked to that project of a new kind of democracy that's more Christian, that's more religious generally. And, it, and the fact is that if we follow this concept of dignity like a, a thread through the 30s and 40s, we find that it, it's really almost like a signal of the victory of Christian Democrats. Now, in the 30s, they'd lost outside of Ireland because Christian authoritarianism was so popular in places like Austria and Spain and Portugal. And then during World War II, many places, including Vichy, France. But after World War II, outside Spain and Portugal, you couldn't have Christian authoritarianism anymore. And so 
a new kind of conservatism arose, Christian democracy. And dignity helps us see how important that was. Um, Let me uh, ask you a question. When you're talking about Christian, your book mm -hmm. generally is talking very much limited to the Catholic Christianity. Yes, yes. And so I think that's very clear for the listener to understand. That I think that's right. Because there's a lot of... Uh, Protestant things going on, too, that you don't yes, really address yes. in your book. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, I I think that a, a fault of the book is that it it is it has a bit more focus on Catholics. There's one chapter only about Protestants, and it's really about German Protestants who may not have been representative. Um, but it's, it's absolutely also the case that dignity could be a Protestant concept, um, it's, it isn't Protestants who inject it into constitutional law first. That's why I think it's interesting to look at, at Catholics. And after World War II, the really famous constitution that has dignity in it is the West German. And what's interesting there is that Catholics who'd been a kind of persecuted minority, often in earlier German history, are now um, much more powerful, and they enter an alliance with Protestants. Um, the new chancellor of post-war West Germany is a Catholic from Cologne named Konrad Adenauer. Um, and in general, Christian democracy, unlike in places like Italy um, or Ireland for that matter, is a, is a collaboration between Protestants and Christians and Catholics. But more broadly, you're absolutely right to say that there are English you know, and, and British more broadly, and especially American Protestants who deserve a place in the story. And I can add a, I can say something about them if you want. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, so so it, it's also the case that we don't find American mainline Protestants having talked much about human dignity before the 30s either. But during World War II, they begin to do so, and they even begin to talk about human rights as the principles that they think should um, help organize the post-war world. Um, so the Federal Council of the Churches of Christ, which is like an organization of the Protestant churches in the United States, um, has a committee to think about world order. And um, it says human rights are going to be really important. And one of the leaders of that um movement is um, John Foster Dulles, who will become U.S. Secretary of State. So the way, I mean, there's debate about this, but um, the, 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 the distinctive feature of American Protestants and maybe Protestants elsewhere is that they're, they're often not only liberal, but very liberal. So on racial issues, for example, in this period, some of these um, participants in in Protestant discourse around human rights were some of the earliest white members of civil rights movements. Um, on the other hand, these are the people, and Dulles not least, who brought the United States and the West into the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So in a way, we can tell a story about Protestants, including American Protestants, joining with um, Catholics in creating a new kind of religious democracy after World War II. You make it very clear in your book that this post-World War II uh, move towards human rights was not instigated by the Holocaust. Right. Uh, we find almost no evidence for that proposition. Now, I, I looked because, you know, as a young person in the 1990s, I learned, you know, I think many of us assumed because of our education then that human rights were announced in direct response to the destruction of European Jewry. Certainly that can have been the case in the 30s when both Catholics and Protestants start to talk about dignity and rights. But it's, it's even more staggering that after World War II, there's not enough knowledge or concern about um, what had happened to the Jews for that to count as a big factor. And so that's why I think we need, even if, it, if we regret it, to focus much more um, not on let's say, who Christians were trying to mourn, but what kind of political society they were trying to set up after World War II in the name of dignity and rights. Now, you talk about the human dignity is the underlying concept for the idea of the human, the Catholic idea of the human person. 
Right. And how is this human person different from the individual? Good. So in a, in a second chapter, I, I kind of, you know, try to be literalistic because I, I look at the UN charter, which is from 1945. And it tells us that the, the kind of main character of human rights will um, be the person endowed with dignity. And so I start with dignity and then I look at person just to see who's saying that word. Now, you and I, you know, say it all the time without meaning anything in particular. But it turns out that in many interesting circles around human rights, there are people who invest a lot of importance in saying that society should be organized around not the individual, but the person. And here's why. They've lived through the crisis of liberalism in the 30s. Um, and this includes in the United States. Um, after the Great Depression, economic liberalism is in very bad odor. Um, and there's a debate about whether we have to get rid of political liberalism, too. Uh, and a lot of Europeans, obviously, think that that's the case, whether they take the more Catholic or Christian authoritarian route or the more pagan uh, route with Nazism and, and fascism. Um, and the, the, the people in whom I'm interested, in a sense, want to, want to protect some parts of political liberalism. But they say we need to do so in a new way that's more communitarian, makes more room for religious teaching and the church's role and power. And so they're very intent on saying that it's not individual rights we're protecting. It's the rights of persons um, because they thought that way they could make sure to indicate that the, the, the society they want to build um, is not going to be one that descends from the French revolution with its atomism and materialism especially since the Soviet Union now claims to inherit the legacy of the French Revolution and says it's a materialist power, um, you know, based on science. So Christians think of the person as a spiritual being. It involves rejecting atomism. It involves rejecting materialism. But it also involves rejecting secularism as the basis of democracy. So that's why the victory of Christian democracy is so important. And more broadly, the Cold War Christianity across the Atlantic. It's, this is the era in which um, lots of politicians talk a lot more about God. We change the Pledge of Allegiance so that it has under God in it. And it's a time in which the Cold War is seen often as a holy war against a kind of um, secular enemy. Now, before uh, the language of human rights was there before the 1930s, of but, course. but it meant uh, something quite different. It wasn't about an individual human person. Human rights were about group rights. Well, is I that, think it's complicated. That, I think that's part part of it. Um, I think you know the the trouble is we we have to define what we mean and we have to decide when we're looking and where we're looking. Obviously. I think, you know, the, the, what I would say is if we look far back to when human rights become politically important, it's in the 18th century, and it's strongly correlated with, with liberal revolution. So the first people to invoke human rights with political bite are people like John Locke and his revolution in the 17th century, and then the founders of the U.S. and the, you know, the French revolutionaries, all of whom are, if you like, terrorists. They think if you invoke human rights, it's a warrant for picking up a weapon and trying to depose the king, maybe replace him, but at any rate, found a state. Um, after the French Revolution, human rights are very often, and especially when people propose to put them in constitutions, correlated with liberalism, secular liberalism. And most people understand this, and that's why the Catholic Church in particular is so vehemently opposed to the French Revolution and its human rights. The French Revolution had been a disaster for the Church, uh, and the popes throughout the 19th century denounced the French Revolution and the relativism, individualism, and secularism that come with it. Um, and so it's just a puzzle, I think, a very interesting one, how... 
Catholics in particular, but also Christians in general, could in, in a sense take human rights when they had been so closely associated with the French Revolution and its secular legacy. Okay, where does the uh, the notion of of group rights come in? Right, right. Which is different from the human rights of the French Absolutely. Revolution. Absolutely. So, um, you know, there's there's a debate about that. I mean, if if we're interested in um, you know, I, I think we probably find it in lots of different places and settings. One of the more famous in the international settings is the proposal also in the 20s and 30s to protect group rights of minorities in Eastern Europe under the League of Nations. Um, but by and large, that sort of went away um, until the rise of things like um, indigenous rights uh, in, in, in our time you know, as another way of, of, of thinking about the, the rights of indigenous peoples. It's also true that there had always been defenses of groups um, and their identity, whether it's national communities in the 19th century um, or women as a, a group or, or blacks or other racial um, minorities or in an imperial case, majorities. Um, but what's interesting is that we, we don't tend to find um, lots of talk about rights when we find, you know, um, defenses of groups for a very long time. So, you know, anti-colonialism was very much a defense of, of groups, nations, and, and the principle of self-determination. But it was very rare to think of that as a right. It was more, a, a, you know, a, a principle. Um, but it's a very complicated history, obviously. Right. In this book, I'm focusing on kind of the move from the liberal individual to the kind of communitarian person in the 30s and 40s. Now, Jack Mariatan, he is the, a key person in your, in your yes, book and very important. Absolutely. Yes. And I have seen him particularly in my study of Latin America, because he's yes, very, exactly. very big in Latin America. Oh, hugely influential in Latin America. Right. So talk about him and his okay. role, because he, he was huge, and he really he reformulated a lot of different things. And he it did. had he broad did. influence. He had broad he influence, did. including, you know, in the Declaration of Human Human Rights. The, yeah, the UN, Dec- the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So he... Um, as I said before, he was by any measure the most famous um, advocate of human rights among kind of intellectuals or philosophers in the 40s. And so, as I said, I, I got very interested in how he got there. And, you know, it turns out, um, you know, through a very circuitous path, he um, was born a Protestant, but um, he converted to Catholicism um actually with his wife, who had been born a Jew uh, in the Russian Empire. Uh, and they met and fell in love in, in Paris and both converted to Catholicism the same day. At that time, as I mentioned, the politics of Catholicism were often very reactionary. And Maritain was a modernist, a great critic of the Third Republic, and in spite of his wife's own background, an anti-Semite. Um, but... Um, he, he kind of evolves in a couple of big stages. A, a, a key turning point is already in the later 20s when the Pope condemns his almost, you know, fascist group, which is called the Action Française, and Maritain leaves it um, uh, because he obeys the Pope. Um, and he, he still has the rhetoric of a, a critic of, modernism and individualism and secularism, but he, he's not sure what, what exactly that means anymore. So in the thirties, he really takes a, an even bigger quantum leap. Um, and he concludes that the authoritarian path that so many are choosing in places like Austria and Spain and Portugal is the wrong path for Catholics. And this slowly leads him kind of in the direction of a Catholic reformulation of liberalism. Now, because of his wife, he's in the United States during World War II. They have to stay out of France, where she's under threat. And it's really because of his American time that he starts to reconcile Catholicism and liberalism and rights. Now, he was in the United States for decades. 
he he first comes in the very late 30s but he's i think he's here definitively from 40 to 45 and then he um becomes the french ambassador to the holy see so he spends some time in rome but he gets appointed to the philosophy faculty of princeton university so he spends four or five years there but ultimately uh, spends the rest of his life in france so I think his actual his key period of actual residence in the United States was 1940 through 45. But As you say, he, he he his his role is kind of making a, a, a kind of reconciliation between Catholicism and and some kinds of modern assumptions, and that has a big influence around the world. And he's also associated with the whole idea of Catholic action. That's true. That's true. So Catholic action really surges in the interwar period in Europe and elsewhere as a kind of Catholic form of, of political engagement that's not focused necessarily on parties or states. Um, and it's very ambiguous. I mean, exactly whether it's liberal uh, or not uh, is hard to say. I mean, it appears in an era of lots of big social mobilizations, both on left and right. And it's very hard to say how Catholic action fits in that. Um, but, but what's certainly true is that he perceives relatively early um, in the later 30s and especially in wartime that if you care about Christianity propagated from below, you can't have a totalitarian state. You know, the, the popes realize this um, when they're, when they're, agreements with uh, Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler went south in the later 30s. Maritain um, had realized that before and starts to frame the limitation of the state in terms of human rights only in the 40s uh, because I think of his American experience. He, he is um, really a big in, in your in your book. Yes, he and, is. And uh, it's interesting to me that he's he's so big that but he doesn't show up a lot, particularly in U.S. historiography. No, no. Even though he was in dialogue with uh, U.S. intellectuals, he absolutely was. I mean, he, in general, I think you know the Catholic intellectual life is not well integrated into U- U.S. intellectual history. But I think more and more as people focus on. Um, the, the kind of Christian outcomes we're going to see in the 40s and 50s, even at the highest levels, um, figures like Maritain become very, very important so that we know there's a renaissance of interest in the history of mainline Protestant thought um, in the works of people like David Hollinger. And more and more, we're getting a great sense of, of how much, how important it is to kind of put Protestantism and Catholicism in the same picture, um, even in the United States and further east. When you get to a place like Germany, it's the central event. The you know Protestants and Catholics had been at each other's throats for decades, if not centuries, by that point since the Reformation. Uh, and yet, the formation of Christian democracy is about this alliance. And so, how did that happen? And, and people like Maritain are, I think, very important to. That the, the the general transatlantic story. Now he was a a proponent of what he called new Christendom. Yes, yes. So uh, he 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 argued that um, you know it may have been okay to shoot for theocracy in the Middle Ages, but it, it, the clock ran out on that. And his critique of the Christian authoritarians he saw, you know, and this was big, you know, and swept Europe. Uh, during World War II, Slovakia, you know, the main client state uh, 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 there of the most subservient client state of Hitler's was run by a Catholic priest. Um, you know, and you get Vichy, you get those 30s products, Austria, Spain, Portugal. Um, Maritain thought those were attempts to create theocracy too late. In modern times, there had to be a new Christendom that was about sort of non-state Christianity. And what he tried to do is remember what Alexis de Tocqueville had said already in the 19th century when he came as a Catholic and saw Protestant America. Uh, and he said, even Catholics are better off 
by not capturing the state on behalf of one version of Christianity. The best way to create a Christian country is by disestablishing churches. And this message just didn't take in Europe until the 20th century after World War II, um, when it, it, it succeeded in a big way. Now, Mario Tan was also very suspicious. He still was suspicious of the, the bureaucratic state. Absolutely. That he saw quickly could uh, overrun yes. uh, communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like Tocqueville, um, like many Catholics in the 20th century, his, his real fear is the secular state, whether it's a liberal state or a Soviet state. And so Catholic social thought is really about subsidiary, subsidiarity or decentralization. You know, it, the, the more local you can get, the better. And the, 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 the least centralization you need is, is, is the best. Um, and he thought, you know, we judge society by its conformity to natural law, which is what Catholics had said for, you know, centuries at this point. But he thought that we'd learned that it, it wouldn't make sense to try to get too close to the state. It was more important to, in a way, keep the state at bay. And that was, you know, true for, you know, important moral relations, but also like established social hierarchies between men and women, between fathers and children. Um, and, and so this, this, this idea of keeping the state at bay, it, it has a very kind of long past and long future because in our, 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 our day, we're still saying, you know, keep the state at bay from churches, make sure they're not too invasive, even if they want to do things like merely impose gender equality on, on, on Christians. Now, uh, let's talk about his philosophy of personalism. Okay. Which okay. we see in the United States, we see it show up in people like Martin Luther King. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, right. What is personalism? It's hard to say in the end. You know, it's it, it 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 it's clear about what it's ruling out. It's ruling out atomism and it's ruling out totalitarianism. Um, both both of those extremes, personalism kind of equates because they're both based on materialism. Atomism is about kind of individual hedonism, you know, and consumerism by. Uh, by, by people who treat themselves as animals. And totalitarianism is obviously like when all of the atoms get kind of um, put in, in one single block. Um, but what personalism means in finding itself in between those two is hard to say, and it should be emphasized that it, it could have been that there were progressive or even left-wing articulations of political Catholicism and Christianity. I've mentioned that American Protestants were very racially liberal in these mainline um, circles. And it's true. That's absolutely the case that Martin Luther King read Jacques Maritain and took from him a very progressive message of racial integration. Um, there were lots of Catholic leftists. It's just that they didn't in general win. Um, it's rather right-wing Christian Democrats who got to like take ownership of these ideas of dignity and the person, and so that's why I emphasize them. Okay, and Christian, uh, you just mentioned Christian Democrats, which were big in Europe and they were big in yes. Latin America. Yes, exactly. But you, in the United States, how did the, uh, that whole idea? Because we've got two-party right. system. How does the idea Absolutely. of Christian democracy? Absolutely. So it's, it's, I think in, a, in, in either not at all or in a different way. So clearly what doesn't happen is that there, there are no self-styled Christian political parties as, as conquered Western Europe after World War II. Um, so that's a great difference. Um, on the other hand, in a way, the, the, the country became even more Christian democratic because in, in Western Europe, there were socialists on the other side of the divide and even communists. In the United States in the 40s and 50s, it was still obligatory um, for um, both parties to say that they, in a sense, hewed to Christian ideals. 
um, you know, Democrats and Republicans at the height of the Cold War both insisted that America was a Christian nation um, and fought the Cold War within kind of similar um, mainstream consensus. Um, But, of course, it's the case that um, for a variety of historical and other reasons, if, if America became a Christian democracy, it wasn't one that featured Christian political parties. We talk a lot about the liberal consensus of mid-century yes. the United yes. States. But one of the things that you talk about in your book is the fact that uh, the conservative, these, Christ, uh, these Christian yes. Democrat conservative right. thinking actually probably did more to influence liberals right. Right. The liberals right. influence the the conservatives. Sure. sure. And so that well, the liberal the liberal consensus really ends up being a conservative right. sort of liberalism. Right. So so I look at this as always as as a historian by training and research of, of Western Europe. And so there um, the liberals in after World War II are the conservatives because there was a socialist alternative. Um, so it's true that the far right has been ruled out. Reactionary politics is off the table, but the center right parties um, are liberals and often, you know, the economic liberals ally with them against the socialists to the left. Now in American history, of course, we talk about a post-war liberal consensus. And of course the, the Republicans of that day uh, were much more liberal by our standards um, and in fact, the Democrats were too, um, in, at, at least up to a certain point. Um, uh, so it, 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 these these terms get very confusing. Right. But we, we but I would just go ahead. Yeah, we, we we sort of don't know what we're talking about. We're saying conservative and liberal. All those they kind of blend exactly. together and cross boundaries. And I think one of the things that you do in your in your historical approach is you you worry you, you're concerned yourself more with how things the ideas how they're used. Rather yes. than a genealogy of an idea, right. because exactly. human rights, you know, a hundred years ago meant different from fifty years ago than what it means exactly. today. And Absolutely. so you're concerned more with how they're used than rather uh, believe that there's some pure essence of, of human it, rights. Absolutely. You know, in American history, I look back and it seems as if the biggest 19th century movement around the rights of man was the movement of economic liberals to keep the welfare state from materializing. So in cases like Lochner v. New York, that those are the people, the people who want to limit working hours, you know, who want to keep working hours from being limited and et cetera, et cetera, who, who say no freedom of contract is a human right. Um, After world war II, long after human rights became kind of a project of the secular left. And we don't, when I say the phrase human rights, you don't tend to think I'm talking about property and contract rights anymore. I, you think I'm talking about saving the world of someone suffering abroad in Africa or elsewhere. And so I've always been intent not to look at these concepts abstractly, but to figure out who's for them and what do they want to do with them. Um, exactly. Now, um, you, talk, you spent a whole chapter talking about Gerard Ritter. Yes. And, and, and I know that you're a European historian, but the, the things that you're talking about, is, especially in the 40s and 50s, there's this yeah. sort of international yes. liberal thing going on. Yes. And yes. you talk about Christian realism, which most Americanists are thinking in terms of, you know, Nieberg here in the United exactly. States. But Christian realism was a, a, was more than just in the United States, and Ritter right. was part of this the construction Absolutely. of this idea. And he's a his, he's, you call him the first historian of human rights. So, what makes talk about what makes Ritter Absolutely. ultimately important that you actually give a whole chapter right. to what right. he did? Right. So, I, I got interested in him because in in the last twenty years, we've seen a massive interest in the history of human rights. Uh, now, if you look back you'll find that in our flagship, you know, uh, journal, the American Historical Review, no one in the 40s ever mentioned the Universal Declaration. Never in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. The first article to mention the Universal Declaration was printed in 1998. And so we're clearly, you know, part of a wave that I think reflects 
the the change in human rights to be mean these saving principles for the suffering abroad. Uh, but they haven't always meant that. And so I wanted to show you that there was this historian in the 40s who not only meant something completely different, but was a religious conservative. And what's interesting, as I think you point out, is that he was very attentive to what was going on in Anglo-American Protestantism. So he knew that German Protestantism, which, you know, invented the thing, obviously, and had led the way as the global leader had gone wrong. It had thrown in its lot actually much more thoroughly with than German Catholicism with Nazism. And so in 1945, he feels it needs to get a reset and he looks outside precisely to people like John Foster Dulles, who are using the concept of human rights as basically an anti-communist principle, but one that will ensure freedom, uh, not equality, but freedom, starting with religious freedom, spiritual freedom for all those who are facing a new world in which, um, you know, the Soviets have turned out to be really important. Um, so just as an example, I give some attention in that chapter to the fact that both Dulles and Ritter um, were participants in something called ecumenical Protestantism. Now, in all the the current interest with David Hollinger and so on uh, about mainline Protestantism, it's still within the U.S., but in fact, there was an attempt to create an alliance of Protestants across the transatlantic and around the world, and it finally comes that, uh, into into existence institutionally in, in 1948 with the World Council of Churches. But Dulles and Ritter both were extremely angry because the WCC failed to take the American side in the emerging Cold War. And so for them, human rights were going to be like a firewall against communism. Um, and I just think it's very important to see how conservatives made use also in Protestant transatlantic circles of these same concepts. Uh, talk, to, talk to me about the uh, Christian realism Absolutely. in terms of how Ritter tried to uh, balance uh, a couple of things, morality, Catholic yes. morality, but also acknowledging the need for force or violence. Yes, or, yes, exactly. Well, we, well we, we know that story as Americanists through the odyssey of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, he moves from, you know, socialist Protestantism, uh, pacifism to, you know, Cold War liberalism. Uh, and in, in that evolution, there seems to be a view that the sinful nature of man means that, regrettably, there's evil in the world and it has to be opposed. Now, Niebuhr was actually very open in his time that there was evil that Americans could propagate too. Uh, you know, that's what the children of light and the children of darkness is about. And Gerhard Ritter, who um, was part of the Christian realist movement along with Niebuhr and Herbert Butterfield in England, um, was also quite open about how how sinful power is in its 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 uses, but he also thought that if you care about morality, ultimately you have to use power and even engage in violence. And that's the legacy of Christian realism, as I see it. When Barack Obama went to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, um, he he clearly had read Niebuhr again. You know, he and Jimmy Carter are the the figures who've done most with Niebuhr and, and Obama, especially in that speech. And these same themes are the ones we hear. The sinful nature of man means that America has to fight wars. Now, this was scandalous, obviously, because he was speaking and receiving a peace prize. And yet it was very important to Obama in those early days of his administration to make clear that he was not a pacifist and that America would fight evil with, with weapons as it has gone on to do. Which, of course, we know that the, uh, the black power movement picked up that whole idea that power had to be met with countervailing power. Right. That you right. couldn't wait right. for the good will right. of people in power to, 
do what was right, that you had Absolutely. to force them to do it. And King had some of that, too. It was, mm-hmm. we can't just expect that they're just going to do what's right. We have yes. to push them. Yes, yes. I think that's true. I mean, King, of course, abjures violence, but right. when, when he says famously the arc of the moral universe is long but bends toward justice, he's often interpreted as as meaning that man can just stand back and let it happen. But he never believed that. And it, it, it was it was invoked for, you know, not to to allow us to be complacent, but it's often uh, sadly used in the opposite way. Now, the uh, one of the key features of this Christian human rights that you describe, the fundamental uh, key concept is religious freedom. Yes. And you, you spent the, your last chapter about religious freedom that started off with com- uh, trying to respond to communism and saying religious mm-hmm. freedom is fundamental to human, to human rights, to human dignity. And, and you end up talking about Muslims. Right. Today, so can right. you talk about that? Because sure. I thought it was a really interesting how problematic religious freedom has become. Sure. sure. Well, it's it's there's so much to say. I mean, on the historical side, of course, religious freedom is very old, and um, what I want to show is that in the 40s, it's adopted as the most important human right for those Christians who are embracing dignity and human rights. And that's true, most surprisingly, of, of Catholics who eventually at, at Vatican II changed church teaching. Um, again, the 19th century popes had hated human rights, but that of religious freedom most of all. For them, they, it was a freedom to, to make a mistake. Uh, and why shouldn't, if we know the truth, the church impose the truth on people? Um, in the 20th century, there's... There's, there are a series of reasons why Protestants especially, but then Catholics joining them, make religious freedom the cornerstone human right. And, you know, it's not surprising that the main reason is, is, is communism. Um, the, the biggest human rights cause in the 40s, so far as I can tell, is the internment of various Catholic uh, clerics in Eastern Europe, especially one uh, named Cardinal Josef Mincenti in Hungary. And this was a cause celebre. You, you know, as an Americanist, you may remember that Phyllis Schlafly uh, gets her start in politics by founding the Mincenti Society um, because it's so outrageous, not just that communism is redistributing, but that it's trampling on Christianity. Um, and uh, what I try to show is that, you know, that that in this Cold War era of the of the of the forties and fifties, human rights were most about that right for the these actors. Now I conclude the chapter by looking at these current cases in the European Court of Human Rights, where secular judges are willing to let states tear veils off of young Muslim girls if they want to go to school. Um, and my conclusion is that there's this very scary thing that's happened that the sense of anxiety and threat that, that communists once posed to Europeans has now, if you like, been transplanted onto Muslims um, and that they're being treated as, as almost subversive in the same way that communists once were. Now, I think that's bad because even if you think communism was dangerous, it's not clear to me that a few young women wearing headscarves are. Um, uh, and I think the decisions are wrong, you know, in, on independent moral grounds. But the case I try to make in the conclusion is that maybe in spite of all that's changed, in spite of the collapse of organized Christianity in Western Europe, maybe this original Christian human right protecting religious freedom against of threatening outsiders is sort of alive and well in these cases. It's, yeah, we're still we're still battling it out. Well, in the United States, you know that that's a huge, it's a Absolutely. huge issue. Uh, Absolutely. Now there seems to be uh, a little broader question. There seems to be some ideas rattling around in your back of your book that you never really address. Yeah. But except there's a it seems to be a continual tension that's gone historically between religion. Mm-hmm. 
and political philosophy and modernity. Yes. And you mentioned John Milkbank, the uh, yes. political yes. theologian. That yes. there are, there are, religion and politics are both making claims about the nature yes. of ultimate reality and how we're going yes. to organize society. And this, this, this is an unresolved and continues to be an unresolved. Who has the priority? Is it religion and theology or is it politics and the state? That's right. It's, it's obviously an enduring dilemma and, a, and it will endure in our lifetimes, you know, if not forever. Um, but, you know, people have reached different answers. Um, as we know, in, in the classical sources of Christianity, we're told of the two kingdoms uh, and that these should have separate jurisdiction. But um, that, hasn't, that, that distinction hasn't always been taken seriously. And so I'm most concerned in the book about the way in which this attempt to found secular jurisdiction um, you know, and privatized religion in modern times was was reversed in the 30s. And a new form of democracy was invented that was much less secular than before. Um, now, a lot of water's under the bridge since then. You know, religious freedom is still used by Christian conservatives in the United States to oppose the secular state, to oppose Obamacare, to oppose gender discrimination norms. Um, I think, you know, that, that the secular state still needs a lift. Um, but there could still be a dispute about that. My main claims are sort of to illustrate, you know, how this tension you mentioned played out, uh, in the thirties and forties with some legacies today. I think it's a fascinating, uh, area of study, this <laughs> religion, political thing. Right. Uh, you finish your book really kind of on a down note. It's sort of a downer because you, on the one hand, you say we need to transcend this history of Christian human rights for something else, but you don't know what the something else is. It's like the human rights after 1960s when Christian human rights were, was secularized. You talk about how it lost its sort of its power. It was not able to inspire or deliver what it was promising mm -hmm. and that it's still sort of weak, that it's a weak concept that doesn't do a lot of work except right. we throw it around a lot and right. that we need something else. Right. And I'm thinking Christian human rights was based on some idea of some transcendent meaning or authority, mm -hmm. something bigger. And if you transcend that, right. what do you replace it with? It's like you yeah. have to have something yeah. that has, ultimate authority besides a state or a community or an individual. Right. What is your thinking on that? Because you just I, sort of I think left it's me a terrific there. Question. I kept read I keep reading your conclusion two or three right. times, trying to see right. did I miss something? Maybe in here right. he's got something. Right. But you seem to be sort of feeling like human rights right now is very um, weak. It's a weak concept right. that doesn't right. work. Right. So I, 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 I think I'm, I'm, you know, my character is, is one of, of pessimism. So I'm never the person to look to for hope, but I still want to be clear that I think it was an incredibly, um, you know, uplifting event for the secular left to, um, take control over human rights from Christianity and use the concept in ways that are not only defensible, but worth furthering. So I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in, in, in human rights, um, both a, a, as normative principles and as, as a movement. But I do think it is, if not halted in its tracks, it, it needs something more. Um, and so in the conclusion, I, I say maybe it should look to Christianity, not to recreate Christian human rights of that I've studied in my book, but in order to learn some lessons about how to spread a faith, a new faith in this case. Now it's never going to be work as well or the, in the same way, because as you say, human rights can't make transcendent claims. It all it says is, can we at least stop torturing people? Can we at least give people a job? Uh, and it's hard to figure out where the motivation is going to be, especially if we think those are global norms for 
those truths to spread without a kind of religious um, message. But it's still the case that religion has some tools. It has, it spread itself through, you know, uh, stories and it spread itself through um, churches that found ways of, of creating kind of local solidarity, missionary uh, uh, solidarity. Um, now, it's also true that I think human rights don't capture all the values that we should want to defend. And so um, I, I, I'm kind of caught between two conclusions. One is that we need to find a way to energize human rights. And the other is that we need to look beyond them for other sets of values that are also worth pursuing locally and globally. Right. Do you, so do you think that right now human rights appear to be uh, pretty much the, the rights of individuals? Mm-hmm. And sometimes by extension we still talk about uh, traditional societies having rights yes. as a society yes. to, to exist, traditional cultures to re- maintain their cultures. Yes. Um, Anyway, so I, would, I wanted to ask you, you there's a lot of uh, critics of your work. Mm-hmm. Very, imminent, particularly very large on, number. Particularly large on number. the imminent frame, there's a lot yes. of dialogue and conversation about your yes. work. Yes. Uh, do you have anything that you want to, any particular critic criticism that you want to address or that you uh, feel that is just missing what? the point? Uh, well, look, it, I, I like to write books that are, are debatable. Uh, you know, because I, you know, I'm, I can survive without good reviews and it's, it's, it's enjoyable and I think productive for people to have arguments. Um, now there are two main criticisms as I understand it of this book. One is that Christian human rights are much older. Um, and that focusing on the thirties and forties is, is not to focus on the, 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 the fact that Christians did invent secular modernity, they invented human rights as part of it. Um, and I think that's true, but I also think it's the case that there was a crisis of liberalism uh, in the interwar period, and, and Christian politics could have gone a very different way if uh, the Americans had lost World War II. Um, the other criticism I've heard uh, is that I... I, I I stress too much that criticism that that Christianity collapsed a- after the 60s and 70s. So many people want want me to have said that human rights remain a Christian project, but I just don't think that's the case. Um, and I think that um, what what's so interesting is how brief, although powerful, um, a a an enterprise Christian human rights were. It's not that there aren't. Um, Christian versions of the human rights project of our day, but they're in the minority. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should just acknowledge that the secular left, having by and large given up socialism and the welfare state as their goal, have adopted human rights and gotten to define them in their own way. I think when I I finished reading your book, I think I was left with what I wanted was, uh, and I know that's just your project, but we could expand in other mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. is the uh, the Protestant peace? Yes, absolutely. They, the peace of the United States becoming a global power. Yes. Uh, how this all influenced uh, this human rights absolutely uh, movement. So, uh, you've been really generous with your time, and I just want to ask you one final question: What are you working on now? So, uh, I for a while I, I've I've been working on a project about human rights and and um, distributive justice um, or 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 social equality. So I actually to put that project on hold to give these lectures and write this this short book. Um, but the basic um, argument of my forthcoming book is going to be that human rights were were mostly about um, were mostly kind of a way of justifying the welfare state, which um, had some egalitarian components. Um, Whereas in our day, human rights are more about global humanity. um, And their rise in that understanding has coincided with the explosion of inequality. So it's it's really a story about how human rights can be part of a larger egalitarian agenda, but in our day have lost connection with such an agenda. Okay. 
Well, thank you, thank you, Sam, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It will be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.